Hey there, I'm so glad you're here. My name is Margaret Petrie, and this is Authentic Obsessions. The world is filled with prolific artists who have this obsessive hunger to create. And today, you get to meet Mary Rowley. She's obsessed with fire, sense of place, the past, and at least during one point in her life, pie. I thought it was really interesting to see how landscape architecture, teaching, glass blowing, and metal smithing all come together for her to form her artistic practice. She talks about how the work is calming and empowering. It's confidence building. Mary talks about having a dedicated routine she does without fail every time she enters the studio and how she uses it to push past worries and distractions and jump into the work. I loved hearing her explain how the physical nature of a traditional craft helps clear and create mental space. She talks about chasing the perfect weld, which sounds like a great name for a documentary, doesn't it? For her, it's all about letting go of the rules. You just have to do it because you want to do it. You have to show up because you never know what's going to happen. Thank you for showing up. And without further ado, here is my conversation with this kind and generous soul, Mary Rowley. Hey, it's Margaret. I am so happy to welcome Mary Rowley to the show today. Mary is a Milwaukee-based sculpture artist, glassblower, welder, and educator. She combines blown glass and fabricated steel elements into these captivating sculptures that evoke natural and built landscapes of the Rust Belt in the Midwest. She has two undergraduate degrees, one in studio art and another in landscape architecture, and she has an MFA in sculpture from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She trained in an industrial welding program and was first introduced to metal casting and fabrication during an internship at a foundry in New Jersey, where she poured large-scale public art sculptures in bronze and iron for artists like Marisol Escobar, Joel Shapiro, and Julianne Schnabel. For the past 20 years, Mary has maintained an active welding and fabrication shop and has exhibited her work in shows and galleries around the country. In addition to her studio practice, Mary works as a designer landscape architect and also teaches 3D foundations and sculpture at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. All right, now let's hear about the working habits and mental and physical spaces that nourish Mary's creativity. Hey, Mary, I'm so happy you're here. Hi, Margaret. Thanks so much for having me. Ever since I visited your studio, I have been so excited to talk to you more in depth about your work and what drives you. I'd like to know a little bit about your creative path. Can you share that with us? Sure. I always did art. I always loved art. I was always building stuff in my parents' basement and uh, drawing things after school. And I had several art teachers as a kid that I just you know, really loved. And they were always really encouraging. It was like one of the only positive messages I got a lot as a kid was, wow, Mary, you're so creative. I just loved art class. I had some great art teachers in high school. The art room was kind of my refuge in high school. I would skip gym class sometimes and my art teacher wouldn't tattle on me. <laughs> she kind of knew, she knew better that I was supposed to be somewhere else. And then in college, I had a really wonderful art teacher who showed me that you, you could become a professional artist, that it was a serious discipline to engage in. And she was one of the hardest teachers I've ever had. Very disciplined, an incredible craftswoman. 
I just wanted to be just like her. Um, a lot of people in the Milwaukee and Madison area know her. Her name was Penny McElroy. Well, she's still teaching at University of Redlands in Southern California. She's just a fantastic person, um, an excellent artist and excellent technician. You said you were building stuff in your parents' basement. What did you build? Uh, mostly, I was just carving stuff out of balsa wood. My dad and my brothers used to love to build airplanes out of balsa wood. And I, I would always get the scrap and I would take an X-Acto blade or a, a utility knife and carve that up and stick stuff together with epoxy. Funny story, I still have a scar on the palm of my hand from a utility knife. When I first picked it up, uh, my dad warned me. He's like, you know, that's sharp. Careful. Sure enough, I cut myself and I, I, just, I ran off and he found me later and was like, did you cut yourself? Oh, and no. I, I tried to hide it, but he always used to tease me about that, but it didn't deter me. It was, it was just always great to be in the basement down there. So you were sculpting from a long time ago. Yeah, I, I remember yeah, I, made cool. this, I made this bright yellow pirate ship. It was terrible, but it sat in our basement in the rafters forever. The college that I went to, we didn't have grades. It was all uh, written evaluation. And so I think that had a, a very lasting effect on like my development as an artist. And I, I wish I could do that today as an educator. I wish I could be grade-free in my art classes. And I always try to give a lot of written feedback to my students. So, so you've worked in a couple different mediums, right? I started out in printmaking, mostly in college. Uh, Penny was a printmaker. She taught typography and book arts. I took every class she offered, and it was, it was just amazing. But I realized um, one of the things that I liked the most about the book arts class was the the equipment presses and the physical engagement but the physicality of printmaking was something that really intrigued me and I and then I really liked the sculptural nature of book arts of artist books and realized that I kind of wanted to do something that I was building something more three-dimensional. I took some other classes. I, I took a summer class at UW-Madison in their sculpture department and just fell in love with it. We got to use big saws, lots of power tools, and we really were encouraged to work large and work big with our final project, I think, was we had all this these two-by-four, these pieces of lumber, and we had got to build something big, and I just, just felt in love with it. It just felt, felt really empowering. So when I got back to school and I talked to Penny about that experience, she was just like, you know, maybe you should explore sculpture more, and I know this place where you could get an internship. Then I was just blown away. The first time I ever saw a piece of bronze being cast, it was just amazing. Large, crucible full of hot, bright orange, molten metal, people working as a team to pour that. And then when it cools and you crack it open and there's this sculpture in there, it was just such an amazing process. So after that internship, I went back and I spent a summer there and worked there for four months. And that's how I really got into metal. And then after that, as I was leaving college, an incoming professor was like, you know, if you really want to pursue sculpture, you, you need to learn to weld and you need to go to graduate school. It took me a little while to get there. I went home, took a class at Madison Area Technical College. Actually, I, I, got, I got into their industrial welding program. So I was in that for a year and a half and learned to weld, learned every welding process there is out there, learned a lot about metal fabrication. And then midway through my education there, I got a job in a welding shop. 
worked there for four years. And the guys in that shop just taught me so much about welding and machining and putting stuff together. And they were so supportive of, of me. They would come to my art shows. They would help me brainstorm and figure out how to build things. So that was just such a wonderful time. They helped me actually build a portfolio of stuff that I could get into graduate school with. Then I started kind of taking classes part-time and applied to graduate school and got in, and then I pretty much made that transition full-time. I've taken some woodworking classes. I'm just not a, not a woodworker. I, I find wood to be a very exacting, a very difficult material. It's not very forgiving. And with metalworking, it's, metal is actually very forgiving. You can make a mistake, and you can weld it back together and grind it out, and no one will know. I just feel like you get so many more chances with, with metal than you do with wood. And I, I think that's kind of the same reason I never went back to printmaking either. Printmaking is very exacting. You always have to have really clean hands. You have to be very precise. And I guess I'm just kind of big and sloppy. And I, I, I love the immediacy of working with metal and glass, especially. What a great community you had with those welders. Yeah, I'm still still friends with them today. That's wonderful. Yeah. 20 years later. Can you name obsessions? When did you realize you had an obsession? How did it manifest? Yeah, I think I'm obsessed with um, fire. <laughs> I love the fact that you can heat metal up and mold it and shape it and pour it and cast it. Um, I love that environment of being in the heat and playing with fire. Welding is such a fun, thrilling thing to do. It's, it's hot, there's sparks, there's flames. And there's the other part of it is the more I do it, the more I want to do it. I, I always want to get better at it. I'm always analyzing the last weld and trying again and trying to get it even more perfect. And so it's, there's always room for improvement. You're always chasing that perfect weld. I guess Sam obsessed with fire and then welds. Everywhere I go and I'm walking around, I'm looking at welds and I'm looking at the quality of the welds on railings, on stairs, signposts. It's, it's kind of funny. So for those of us who don't know about welding and have a background in it, can you describe what a weld is? Is it the place where the two things come together and if it's clean? Exactly. It's, weld? it's that joint between two pieces of metal. Usually you're looking for something that looks like a really nice, long, straight one or sometimes people describe it as a stack of dimes. That's a particular welding process, but it's clean at the edges. It's got a low profile. It is you know, fully connecting the joints. There's no splatter. It's not messy. It's not irregular. And it's really hard to do. It's really hard to do your hand. I don't know, your hand, my hand is kind of jittery. And so it takes a lot of concentration and practice to control your travel speed when you're welding. I can tell just by looking at a weld how fast someone was moving with their hand or how slow, you know, where they were maybe shaky or where they interrupted the weld and started again. You know, and if you talk to other welders, they feel the same thing, talk yeah. about welds all day. Do you feel like the rest of your internal life is fiery and sparky? And like, would people describe you in that element? Or if that is just part of your studio practice and you are, you know, another way outside of that? You know, I, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe myself as this fiery, strong person. No, I think I'm pretty much a jumble of nerves all the time. And, and, you know, I'm a worrywart for sure. And I think that the discipline of welding and glass blowing in particular 
is something that's very calming and empowering. It's it's exciting, but it's it's also very it's it's confidence building for sure. You always you have to be aware. It's dangerous. You have to be engaged with all of your senses, and you're aware of everything that's happening around you. You're aware of the sound that the welding is making. It's you're aware of the sound of the torch. And you're always smelling for things catching on fire in the background, <laughs> that sort of thing. So it's probably the most that I'm ever engaged in a moment and in the present moment. I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm not worrying about anything else. And it's, it's just such a pleasant escape from whatever you know turmoil is happening inside. Um, your other jobs, which I think you have too, so teaching and landscape architecture work. Are those mostly with people? Do you feel like there's a balance there between going to the studio and being alone and being with a group of students? Or I don't know if you have a design team. That is, that's a good way to look at it. It is a nice balance. I do a lot of, I am a very social person and a lot of my metal fabrication stuff is done alone. And I guess I, I do appreciate that alone time. I, I love the team process that's involved with glass blowing, And I, I love the social nature of the classroom. That's, that's great. And I guess landscape architecture is also very team-based. Any design profession, there's always some group discussion and brainstorming and working together as a team. There, it's a very different practice. Why am I drawn to that? It's calming. It's creative. It uses my mind in ways that metal fabrication and, and welding don't. When I was working as a professional welder, I didn't feel like I was using my brain so much. People looked down on me, actually. People looked down on me for being a welder. can't tell you how many times people thought that I was homeless because <gasps> I was walking around in like really gross, dirty clothes because I'd just gotten off work. Because it's, you know, it's unusual to see a woman that's like covered head to toe in soot, dirt, and grime. And um, my hands were always dirty as a glassblower. My hands were always filthy uh, just because of the nature of the work. So that wore, that wore on me a little bit. And then we sort of talked about this before, not to go on another tangent, but like I, that, I hurt my back. Working in a welding shop, um, working as a glass blower, it's very physically taxing on your body. And I, I hurt my back. So I went back to school for something that was still art related, but something that was maybe a little more professional, still creative, use my brain a little bit more. But the funny thing is with landscape architecture, it was very much related to my sculpture. And I didn't realize that until I got into landscape architecture, until I started realizing that I'm one of my other obsessions is sense of place. You know, finding those unique places on the planet, they're kind of rare to find these days. I grew up on the rural edge of Madison, kind of in farm country, and saw the landscape behind me, like around me, change dramatically just in a 20-year period. It went from being all farmland to being suburban sprawl. That loss of sense of place and that unique identity of the land that I grew up around, you know, just being lost, that, that had a huge impact on me and is a constant theme in my artwork. And if you talk to other landscape architects, that that's constantly what they're trying to recreate, this sense of place, unique, memorable places with identity. I really appreciate the work that goes into that. And I appreciate all of the beautiful, natural outdoor spaces that I encounter. That's my sanity right there. Yeah, for sure. Me too. 
it's just this last weekend we went out in the country and my blood pressure just dropped just being in a wide open green landscape without other things around with just the birds and it was just so nice and so relaxing and i miss my walks at the audubon center yeah i'll get back there eventually when I was in your studio, you said landscape architecture is 3D environmental art. Yep, definitely. I love that. So how did you get into glass blowing? Was that part of your undergraduate education that you learned glass blowing? No, totally in my graduate program. And so it was a little nuts to be a complete beginner at something um, when I was in a graduate program trying to supposedly improve or perfect and master something. I got into graduate school on a printmaking portfolio and a, and a sculpture portfolio, and I was taking sculpture classes. And I think someone in my, one of my sculpture classes was like, you think this is cool, you ought to check out the glass lab. And I took a stroll down there with him and watched some people blowing glass. And it was just like that moment in the foundry, seeing molten orange, you know, the flames and everything, the molten orange metal being cast for the first time. Glass blowing is very similar. You're using a furnace that is, you know, 2300 degrees and shaping and melting this, you know, thing that appears solid to us most of the time and it's actually, you know, kind of a liquid when you expose it to that kind of heat. So, it was just mesmerizing and then the whole physicality of it. It's just it's you're using your whole body when you're blowing glass. You're very in the moment. A lot of people describe it as a dance. Yeah, you're, you're reading the surface of the glass and the heat with every sense in your body, touch, sight, physical. So it's, it's, and it's super fun. It's super fun to do and pretty much everything you make comes out almost beautiful. At least, my, <laughs> at least my mom thought so. It's definitely empowering. I mean, you don't think you can do something and then you find out that you actually can and it's really rewarding. Can we talk about your studio a little bit? Sure. Tell me about your routine when you get to the studio. Do you have a routine when you show up? Yeah, definitely. And I think we were talking about this because like other artists, I struggle with getting to the studio. It's intimidating. You know, it's, it's easy to put off. What I do is I found what works for me is I have to have a routine. I pretty much do the same thing every time I'm in there and it gets me in the mindset of starting and getting ready to do some work. Kind of religiously, when I go to the studio, I walk in, I do the same thing every time in the same order, in the same, in the same manner. And I almost feel like if I do it out of order, I'm going to mess something up. I walk in, I turn on the lights, I have to walk across the room to the radio, I turn the radio on, then I take my coat off and I, my coat hangs on the same hooks by the brooms and then I grab the broom and I sweep and I clean up whatever mess I left behind the last time. And that process of cleaning just helps me settle down and prepare and figure out what I'm going to do. I'm the kind of person that I, I want to do, I have a one track mind. I want to do one thing for an extended period of time to completion. And that's just not an ideal way to work. You know, you're rarely going to have eight hours to just plow through and finish a, a piece of art. And I've, I found that that was a stumbling block for me for a lot of years. And so I, one day I just said, you know, I can prepare. I can prepare to do work. And so even if I'm just going and sweeping my studio, it's ready for the next time. But most of the time what I found is that once I cleaned up and swept, I was relaxed enough and focused enough to start working on what I wanted to do. That freed me up to say, okay, I'm going to spend two hours in the studio and maybe it turns into five 
or 10, or maybe it's just 45 minutes and I'm not feeling it and I leave. You really have to allow yourself that kind of space. Otherwise you just, for me, it's just too intimidating. I don't know. Or or it'll be too easy for me to find an excuse. Oh, I don't have 10 hours today. I'm not going to go. It seems to me that your work might necessitate a longer period of time to start up, to do some work, to clean up. It's not like you can go in the other room and take a pencil and do some sketches for 10 minutes and then go throw the laundry in, right? 45 minutes seems like a short period of time, but maybe it's not. It is short, but I've found that you string a few days of those 45-minute sessions together, and pretty soon you've made some progress. I think that once I finally saw that, that allowed me to get over the idea that I need all this time to do something. But you're right, you know, turning on the equipment, firing up the torches, turning on the gas, all that, you do kind of want to make it worthwhile to be in there. And then it's always a good idea after you've been welding to kind of hang out for a little while after and make sure you haven't started any fires that you don't know about. I almost always leave a mess in my studio. I I work until I'm exhausted and I leave a mess. And then I'm set up to start the next time I come in, clean, settle down and get, get my thoughts together of how to proceed. We were talking about your routine and you said something about double Dutch. What was that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tell oh, me. Glad you that, remembered. Yeah, yeah. Tell I was thinking about that this morning. Yeah, it's like jumping rope. The rope is spinning and you're just kind of at the edge waiting to jump in, trying to, you know, get that courage and the timing to jump in. I feel like my practice is a lot like that. Is it and the sweeping that is like that too? Or the whole practice? I have this vision of you sort of sweeping and then the broom goes, you know, goes swoosh and you jump into your work. Yeah. Maybe that was just my takeaway from after our conversation and, and that think, was nothing you said. I think while I'm sweeping, I am definitely in my mind timing it, working up the timing of like, There's a okay, rhythm. when am I going to jump in here? Am I ready to go? If I'm not ready to go, I keep sweeping. Sometimes I'm in there doing stupid stuff like sorting nails and screws and putting things away like that. But anything to help you work up the nerve to just start. And a lot of times starting a new sculpture, I think, is the hardest. Once you get started, then there's always a list of things you have to do. Oh, I've got to weld that. Oh, I have to grind and polish that. Or, oh, I've got to fit the glass to figure out how the glass is going to fit onto it. So do you make glass pieces separately and then have pieces of glass before you make a metal sculpture and then put them together? Because your sculptures incorporate both of those, right? Right. Elements. I usually have a completed picture in my mind, a sculpture, and then I I guess I would usually make the glass first, but I kind of have an idea of what I'm going to do for the metal, and then I fit the metal to the glass. But most of the time I have a preconceived idea when I'm at the glass blowing bench of what shape I want to make that's going to work with the metal. I am doing a series of pieces now where I'm walking up to the glass blowing bench with no preconceived idea and doing a little bit more freeform stuff and then seeing if I can duplicate a mirror image in the metal to complement it. So that's, that's sort of something I'm working on right now. I've got one, a couple of those pieces done. They're just about form, not really about any kind of story or anything. So it's a, diff- it's a little bit different way of working for me. It's fun. It's probably a little looser, which I could use. I wish I could be looser and more painterly about my work, but I'm a little bit more uptight. That's not what I see when I look at your work. I think it is loose and free just because of the movement that it evokes. Thank, just thank you. Very yeah. compelling. I love them. Do you have a uniform? 
You know, my uniform when I go to the welding shop is a really cruddy pair of jeans that are kind of permanently messed up from being in the welding shop and then sweatshirt or a hoodie. I guess I have one or two pairs of pants and one hoodie sweatshirt that is just destroyed. And I, I need a new hoodie, actually. It's full of holes. I will sew something and patch it until it can't be patched anymore, pretty much. I always think, oh, I should get a pair of coveralls and then just leave those at the studio and protect all of my jeans or sweatshirts. I've just never done that. No matter what happens, I always try to keep nice clothes out of the studio, but it doesn't last long. Inevitably, I'm walking in there with a decent pair of jeans and they don't survive. So. Yeah, but it's such a large part of your life. I always think it's funny. I'm always, I'll wear something to my studio not thinking, thinking I'm going to like cut up a bunch of paper and I end up painting and then it, yeah. I get paint all over. And I think, who cares? This is who I am. This is my life. And the opposite of that, when I go into work for landscape design, I do have to dress up. I do have to look somewhat professional. And I guess I, I like that. It helps me feel like I've got something more than, more than just grubby clothes. I guess I get to feel like a professional, which is nice. Because for some reason in society, in the United States, people don't view artists as professionals, really. So how do you get students in and learn these crafts that are being lost, mm -hmm. blacksmithing or, mm -hmm. I don't know, weaving and all of that? And I think you are, I don't know if I would say you're between art and craft, but there's a, there's a divide of how craft is viewed. Yeah. No, I think you're right to say that I'm between art and craft. I definitely value, I want to be known as a good technician. I want to be known as someone who knows her craft. I really admire those people who devote their lives lives to being a better craftsman and doing what they do, just always pursued, pursuing perfection. Yeah. How to get students more, more into that? I think through art school, I mean, fortunately, the lines between art and craft are blurring more and more, and people are seeking out traditional craft techniques and employing that in like unusual ways and more sculptural and artistic ways. Places like Haystack and Oxbow and Aeromont, all those schools are are great but like you said yeah expensive that was definitely a part of my art education being able to go to places like that yeah we need more of them I think it's it's so important for students to learn traditional craft techniques like blacksmithing like typography in some ways is kind of a lost art glass blowing I think it would be so so good it's so confidence building I think it would be mm -hmm. really great for a lot of our students elementary school kids and things to, to have experiences like that it would be great if more universities brought that in I think they're trying to it waxes and wanes are there reactions or conversations you hope to spark in people when they view your work yeah one of my other obsessions is the past and I think I'm always kind of looking back and I'm I'm really, I'm a very nostalgic person. Um, I've tried to shake that over the years, but I, I can't. And so I guess the conversations I'd like to have with people would be, you know, an awareness about how the landscape is changing and the loss, the, the cultural heritage that's being lost, the nature that's being lost, our connection to the land that's being lost. We've traded these rural communities, have been transformed, the landscape's been devoured, and it's been turned into just these cities that are transactional spaces that no one really has any connection to, except for making, making money. There's no connection to the land. I think a lot of people are craving that. It's no wonder things like community garden plots are so popular. 
growing up, my parents always had a garden and just being able to grow some of your own food. I think it's being in relationship with the land is, is really important and we're losing that relationship. And once it's gone, it's gone. I don't think you can bring that back. There's a lot of talk in landscape architecture about restoration and it's a it's you know i think something we have to try but you can't ever really fully restore land the way it was that whole functioning system you know i don't know you you've talked a lot about the physicality of your work how do you recover from a long day in the studio lots of lemonade and ice water iced coffee sitting in the shade right after graduate school i was a glass blower production glass blower in madison and we blew glass eight hours a day five days a week all summer long and some days in the studio it was 120 degrees it'd be 90 degrees outside it'd be 120 in the studio and i would be soaking just drenched drenched, just soaking wet at the end of the day. It was gross. I would take a bandana and I would soak it in water and put it in the freezer and then wrap that around my neck and that would keep me cool and just drinking lots of ice water. I did that when I was a lot younger. That was late 20s. So I can't imagine blowing glass eight hours a day like that anymore. Very unique. When I was thinking about recovering from work, I think about people who do repetitive work, but all of the things that you do, it's sort of like a full yoga routine as you're doing all of your work because you're using like all of your muscles, aren't you? You're really moving your whole body. Yeah. And you'd be surprised. I hadn't been in the studio for a couple of weeks towards the end of the semester. I was just so busy. And then I went in to make this one sculpture at a deadline coming up. So I hadn't been in there in a couple of weeks and I was just doing welding and grinding and I couldn't believe how bad my body hurt two days later, just because I hadn't used those same muscles um, for a while. Yeah, it's it's really hard on your body. You have to stay in shape. You have to keep moving. If you stop moving, you everything seizes up and starts to hurt. So. I think that's just a good motto for life. Don't stop moving. Yeah, yeah. The worst thing for my back is sitting down for long periods of time at my desk. Oh. I'm going to go back to something you said earlier about going back to the land and how we're really losing that connection to the land. And you talked about gardening. With the situation that we're in right now, in May 2020, the pandemic, there's been a run on garden supplies and seeds and everyone's growing things. I wonder if that will stick with people. I mean, my garden is bigger than ever this year, but I have time to tend the garden. We're not going on trips. We're not doing anything else. I wonder if that will be something that sticks. I really hope so. I think it's so therapeutic and so satisfying. And I think people will realize that it tastes so much better than the stuff that they get in the grocery store. And I think they'll find that they feel a lot calmer and healthier by just a little bit of work in the garden and eating food that they've made. I think the future is do it yourself. I think the best revolution we could have for the preservation of democracy is to do it yourself. As many things as we can. As many things as you can. You have exhibited consistently and pretty widely. And as I was looking at your CV, a couple exhibition titles stuck out. One was Bake Pie Mow Lawn, Images of Domesticity in Neon. Tell me about that. I love that. My first year in grad school, one of the classes I took was a neon bending class. And that instructor really emphasized the main glass instructor at UWM when I was, or UW-Madison when I was there was Steve Farron. And in the neon class, he really wanted to push people past the typical neon art that you see. No palm trees, no flamingos, nothing like that. 
at the time I was really obsessed with pies. I was obsessed with that whole idea of the American dream. And here I was like in my young twenties, trying to pursue that for myself and feeling not super successful at it. And there was a little bit of a recession going on and couldn't seem to find any work that was real meaningful. Like right when I got out of college in 1992, I could not get a job. I remember the first place I applied was Winchell's Donuts and I got rejected because I had no experience. And I tried to get a job in a grocery store, got rejected. And I moved back to Madison and some of my first jobs were like, I got a waitress job, but mainly because I, I lied on my resume. I said that I'd worked at a truck stop. And a I truck figured, stop of all places yeah, to lie about? Yeah, yeah. Well, they were, probably wouldn't check. Yeah, I figured they wouldn't check. They were a CD organization anyway, so they didn't, they didn't care. But you know, I just was so disillusioned. You know, I, I went to college, I worked hard and, you know, I was waiting tables. So I started really examining that whole, the whole image of the American pie. Um, I'd spend a lot of my days in coffee shops, drawing and sketching the pie case. I would make postcards and send them off to my friends. I did a series of woodblock prints all about pies and I started to get back to the neon thing. I thought, well, that's the perfect imagery for neon is a pie. So I started making neon pies and a friend of mine was making neon lawnmowers. We decided to have a show kind of about pies and lawnmowers. And it just seemed like a very, you know, division of labor kind of like. He was a guy, so he was the lawnmower part. When I was growing up, I wanted to be hanging out with my brothers. I didn't want to learn to cook. I didn't want to learn to bake. I was kind of a tomboy. I kind of rejected the whole gender stereotype. I didn't see myself as girly or frilly. So I rejected learning how to bake and cook and stuff. And then when I got out of college, it was like, oh my gosh, I want, I need to learn to cook and bake. And so at the same time as I was exploring these ideas of American pie and what it means to pursue a dream and stuff, I was like, well, I'm gonna learn to make pie. So I was baking pie at the same time. We had pie baking going on during the opening of the art show. Excellent, um, what kind of pie? Well, at the show that night, I think there was all kinds of fruit pies. I love making fruit pies, but I like the tart pies. I don't, I don't like the sweet pies. Like I'm not a big fan of cherry pie. I like strawberry pie. Strawberry rhubarb is great. One of my favorite pies is cranberry pie. I make that every Thanksgiving. It's delicious. It's kind of a sweet, sweet, savory tart kind of thing. Okay, what about woman a la mode? Yeah, there's, at the time of that show, I was a volunteer for the Women's Caucus for the Arts. The Women's Caucus for the Arts is a national arts organization that tries to promote and educate the world about women artists and their value. They had monthly meetings and they would put together regional art shows and national art shows. And the Women a la Mode was a regional show that the Wisconsin chapter put on. And I think it featured women from Wisconsin, but also Illinois. And it was at a theater called The Mode in Watertown. A really cool couple bought an old movie theater and converted it to their workspace and studio space. They rehabbed this old theater called The Mode. She was a performance artist, so she did some work out of that space on her own too, but she generously gave us the gallery space for a show. It was all women artists and it was a blast. How do you feel about deadlines? I love them. I definitely someone that needs a deadline. I need a little bit of pressure to get to the studio and to really get a hustle on things. 
I'm the kind of person I mull over an idea for a really, really long time. And then by the time I'm ready to make it, I can usually put it together pretty quickly. I think deadlines are good. I have to have a deadline too. Otherwise, it's just all so loose and I, I need some structure around yeah. an organizing principle yeah. to compel me to keep going. Yeah, I definitely need structure. Do you feel like you live a messy, complicated, contradictory life or is it all beer and Skittles? No, it's definitely messy and contradictory, I would say. But I try to I try to have those uh, the few things that are kind of anchoring and centering. And that's that's definitely the metalworking. It's just kind of a constant in the background. And that helps a lot. And then, yeah, landscape design also really helps. That's something I'm always coming back to. I guess one thing I would say for other artists out there, I feel like, I don't know, through a lot of my practice over the years, I had all these rules and all these ideas of what does it mean to be an artist and I have to do this or I have to do that to be considered an artist. I took a lot of years off. I took seven years off from making any art and I was like, well, you know, a lot of people were like, well, you'll never go back or you're not a real artist or blah, blah, blah. Or, or maybe those were just the things I told myself. But and a lot of people were like, well, you just have to have confidence. And I never really found confidence I guess what I would say is kind of screw that, you know, you've got to just do it. Just don't wait for confidence. Go there and do something, do it because you want to let go of those rules of like, it has to be this way or that way to do art. You have to have a stretch of time or you have to have a studio or you have to have all this other stuff. Just, you don't, you just got to do it because you want to do it or you have to have an art degree. You don't. Showing up is 90% of the battle. Yes. Yep. That's something I tell my students all the time. Suit up, show up. You never know what's going to happen. You might have a great day in the studio. You might have a terrible day in the studio. You might meet someone that really lifts your spirits and gives you a shot in the arm and makes you think about your work differently. And I tell my students that too. Don't wait for confidence. Just just go do it. And it'll come after that. That's what I've that's what I've found. And just need to show up and do it. You talk yourself out of it and you compare yourself with everyone else who's already doing the work. And until you actually do the work and get the feeling, the satisfaction and the gratification inside that it's feeding your soul, then it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. But if you don't do it, you can just talk yourself out of it forever and ever. Yeah, you just have to do it. And the artists that are getting the shows and getting the awards are the ones that are applying and doing work. Um, yeah. And anyone can do it. Yeah. If I can do it, anyone can do it. <laughs> It's kind of like the, the coronavirus pandemic situation has been a good time for me to like do more, like sketch and right. think about things. So it's, it's weird. Mm-hmm. It's been a kind of a creative time. It's reflective. Yeah. You know, the class that I teach, the students are learning to use the fun equipment, the saws, the power tools. Oh, and yeah. That sort of thing. And it's a really huge confidence building, big growth spurt for them. And my students missed out on that at the end of the semester. I just felt so bad for them. Mary, I've got a series of rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. First one, music, podcast, TV, or silence? I'm a news junkie. I have NPR on almost 24-7. What's your comfort food? All food, pizza, <laughs> a good bar burger, iced coffee. Iced coffee is my, is my security blanket. Describe your favorite outdoor spot. Schwamagon National Forest in northern Wisconsin. And what would you do with a financial windfall? I would pay off the debt of my family members. Then I would build a really awesome glass shop that other people could use. And then I think I would donate the rest to some sort of educational organization or institution. 
I was thinking about this this morning, something that would be pro-democracy, because I really believe in that. I believe education is a pillar of democracy and that everybody needs to have access to it. Agreed. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time today. And it was great to see another human face, even though you guys can't see us, at least Mary and I got to see each other today. And I can't wait to visit your studio again and see what you've been up to. Thank you so much, Margaret. It was really fun, really fun talking to you. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun.